be full of fright. I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello. Hi. At the devil's ball. At the devil's ball. Welcome to The Dispatches, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. This is episode 23, Deep in Denial. <laughs> so glad y'all still laugh at this stuff. And I'm Jacob. That sounded like a question. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm Jacob. <laughs> Are you Jacob? I must answer in the form of an exclamation. I'm Jacob. <laughs> I'm Victoria. I'm Jamin. Oh. Oh. Hi. Well, I have some great entertainment this week. <gasps> Do tell. Yes, this week a towering and obscene three-headed wolf will stab blasphemers with a drill and drive them into a marsh. Will stab blast... Blasphemers. Oh, blasphemers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was with like, a... stab blast. Like, you're going to stab <laughs> with a blast. I was like, oh, this is new technology. Well, you're using a drill. So mm. I imagine, like, that would be a stab blast. It also sounds like some kind of, like, 90s snack food geared towards tweens. Snack blast! Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> stab <Well>. blast! <laughs> Why just... Yeah, stab blast is something your dentist does. I feel like mm-hmm. blas- blasphemy as a sin doesn't really get enough press these days. <laughs> For those of you at home... God if, damn it. If, <laughs> if you haven't blasphemed today, the day is not over. Nope. There's still plenty of time. Particularly if you're in your car right now. <laughs> yeah, and you should do it at like three in the morning, right? I mean, that's the... <laughs> well, traditionally people listen to podcasts during rush hour in the morning. Prime time for mm. blasphemy. Yeah. That's true. That's true. True. Did you notice that BMW in front of you didn't use its blinkers? Begora! <laughs> <laughs> Zounds. Oh, I love that one. I have a drink. Oh. It is beer that has been tinted with red ochre to re- resemble blood. Very stylish. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like St. Patrick's Day beer. Yes. Except, it's like... <laughs> except... Does it does it have a name? Uh, let's call it Sunday Bloody Sunday. <laughs> Ooh, that's troubling. I I brought avocados in the theme of things. They've been embalmed. Ooh, <laughs> get to go in with a wire coat hanger and remove the seed, <laughs> and then and then you pour in vinaigrette. Okay, mm. right, right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you wrap it in bacon? Instead I use cheesecloth, but I mean, you're missing an opportunity there. What if you What if you did it in brioche, like you mm. know, strips oh. of brioche? Oh, well, that's mm. nice. Yeah. Later mummification technology involved pickling, so there's that. Too. Ooh, mm. Mm. mummies must have been delicious. Uh, <laughs> I mean, up to a certain point, <laughs> it's probably a, a best before by date. <laughs> but were they kind of like? I mean. Capri Suns, remember, like, where you stab them with a little straw? (laughs) Yeah, I'm certain that someone has eaten mummies as a medicine for some reason or some cause or something. They have. Well, wasn't there a, um, there was a a pigment, which was, like, mummy brown? Yep, mummy brown. And uh, there was a medicine called mummia. 
because there was a false belief that mummies were preserved with bitumen. That actually wasn't true, but they were, yeah, mined for the bitumen, which was a sort of generic medicine. Tar? It's, yeah, I guess bitumen is tar. spelled bitumen, right? Yeah, but it's pronounced bitumen, huh. I believe, right? Hmm. Yes. Are you, no, do you, I... Do you doubt VUCA? <laughs> I believe I've only ever read that word. Mm-hmm. Having but never yeah. had the opportunity to use it in conversation. I'm going to Google bitumen plus Pliny the Elder. Oh, yeah. Where I got this information was a 1927 abstract published in Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine. And it was powdered mummies, popular between the 12th and 17th century. So they're disentombed and burned to meet the demand for mummia. And yeah, there was a belief in the medicinal properties of bitumen or bitumen. He mentions it, but he doesn't recommend it for any purpose that I can find right this second. I feel like it was one of those like generic poultices or whatnot. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Here's a, here's a good question. How was mummia applied? See, yeah, that I'm not sure. Like, was it a poultice? Did you, did you take pills? My guess is that poultice, just given the time, the time period. Okay. Cause yeah, like rubbing tar on your body would pull out the toxins. Mm-hmm. Much like, you know, bathing in La Brea today. Yeah. I yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't eat a mummia, but I would definitely like if I wanted to quit smoking, I would definitely use mummia patches. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Stop, stop it might be a cravings. good like facial like mask to tighten the pores as well. I have the largest pores. You can't see <laughs> me noticed. shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Wicker Man in there. Like, you could put little animal sacrifices. (laughs) I'm kidding. I kid. I kid. I have no idea what your pores are like, and I'm sure they're fine. There's so much. In in his pores? No, about about mumia. Is there? A sovereign remedy, a sort of bitumen or black mineral pitch, which is soft and tough like shoemaker's wax. It is found in Persia, where it is highly valued. So it's pitch. Well, it's, it's used... In the embalming process, sometimes mm-hmm. it is not the mummy itself, but but Shakespeare uses it as such once or twice as as a joke. Oh man, there's there's a lot here. Man, I can't wait to read the show notes on this one. Yeah, totally. I, yes, I feel like we need to maybe have an episode dedicated to these kind of infernal infernal cures or something like that. Potables and poultices. N- necrotic medicine. Necrotic medicine. Mumia is a spice found in the sepulchers of the dead. Ooh. That is best, which is black, ill-smelling, shiny, and massive. Whoa. That was the one-star review on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> or the regular. King Francis I always carried with him a mixture of mumia and rhubarb. Huh, that's interesting. Some like that's- it tart. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that little jar too, um, which I'm sure somebody could see on the show notes. This is very exciting. I feel like this is this is why the podcast exists. <laughs> Hell news. Uh, I think we have to talk about little NASA's trial. I think we do. I think we do. So I think we were also about to start posting this on Twitter when we learned that he was going on trial for his court case against Nike. I'm kind of glad that we didn't. <laughs> yeah, am I allowed to be less enthused about this? No. <laughs> yes, no. 
<laughs> oh boy, <laughs> tell us more. <laughs> the court date was June 23rd. This was a fictional trial where Lil Nas X was judge, defendant, juror, two lawyers, and the plaintiff. Was the plaintiff a shoe? No, no, no. Was... <laughs> this was a uh, kind of promotional short to front his new single, Industry Baby. It's kind of played as a courtroom drama, and the like. key question for the trial is not, uh, was there blood in the shoes, or... Um, why did you choose Bear besides his obvious charisma and many legs? Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> does your mama know you're gay? And then it kind of, the the kind of promotional short kind of trails into where the video begins, which is him going to Montero State Prison and uh, beginning his five-year sentence there. Uh, Montero State Prison has a lot of very dancy naked men in it, so... Like all good prisons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's changing my, my impression of... of uh, prisons in general and uh, the entire oh this is tied into a new kind of charitable movement of his the bail x fund which is aiming towards uh reducing high arbitrary bail charges which are usually kind of racially based and charged wow that's, i didn't know that that's bail well, that's cool b-a-i-l not b-a apostrophe a-l oh see that would oh my gosh the Baal, maybe it's both the Baal x fund all <laughs> Hmm. Hmm. See, he's doing nice things and he's doing good things and he's making impacts. But he led me astray on this court thing. Do you feel betrayed by little? You wanted the shoe. You wanted the shoe to testify. (laughs) Tongues would have been wagging. (laughs) Wow. That hurt me to the soul. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't mean to tread on your feelings. Let's lace this one up. <laughs> Can we go to Egypt? <laughs> Let's go oh, to Egypt. Oh, man, Egypt. Uh, yeah, on July 19th, an ancient sunken city was discovered in Egypt. Divers discovered the remains of a military vessel in the ancient sunken city of Tanis Heraklion. This is the opening vignette for the new Exorcist sequel, I assume. Oh my gosh, and that's another thing we haven't talked about. We did talk but, about the sequel, um, but it's turning into a trilogy. Egypt, mm, Egypt though. Egypt, so back to Egypt. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but this city was once Egypt's largest port on the Mediterranean, and a funerary complex um, illustrated the presence of Greek merchants. Oh. So the Heraclean part of this of the name of the city was the Greek part, and the Taunus part was the Egyptian part, so this shows that intermingling of those two cultures. But it was a very important port with a lot of important temples as well. Neat. So, yeah. Um, that's pretty exciting. I was, I'm was. i hoping that they find out more about all of this. I shouldn't derail us from our topic at hand, but I do want to discuss folk etymology because it upsets me. Why does it upset you? Uh, because people believe it and it's silly. Because I use it a lot. Well, no. Yes. Um, I mean, I do, but... So, Reuters fact check, uh, July 2021, the internet law does not <laughs> endorse Satan. Some, some, LOL. Some dubious and false claims floating around on Facebook, which is full of silly people, saying that LOL stands for Lucifer, our Lord, and Christians shouldn't use it. Karen, I read this post on Facebook. Check <laughs> your son's text. If he says LOL, he's got Satan friends. 
I mean, is it? It's kind of like everybody getting all up in arms about Kiss, Knights of Satan Service, yep. best mm-hmm. band. Yeah, yeah, and they were just a hair band, just a glam rock hair band. Well, come on. Gene Simmons was less of a hair rocker than a tongue rocker. He was totally a tongue rocker. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, didn't I mean, know that was a term. Mm-hmm. It is now. It is now. There's tongue acting too, like there are renowned tongue actors out mm. there as well. It's like a tongue yeah. model then. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm going to guess if you Google image tongue, Gene Simmons is in the first three pages. Okay. I'm gonna do that on my work computer right now. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna i I'm gonna I'm gonna search for tongue rocker and tongue actor on my work computer. In a rare moment of actually agreeing on something, the Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple released statements saying, no, it doesn't stand for Lucifer, our Lord. It stands for laughing out loud. Which is what we're doing right now. Yeah. (laughs) And usually Satanists just say, hail Satan, and that's more of an upraised middle finger than an actual salute to the devil. I mean, acronyms are great and all. Everyone uses them. It's just Lucifer, our Lord. Why the face, man? Apparently, this is this rumor has been in circulation since 2012, and this is not really timely journalism. It was just brought to my attention. 2012? I'm pretty sure I've been LOLing since at least the late 80s. You've been loving on Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> loving on Lucifer. I like that. Uh huh. Let's let's spread that rumor that it actually stands for loving on Lucifer. That's kind of nice. Okay, now we can maybe get to Egypt somehow. Egypt, <laughs> Egypt, 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 Egypt. Everyone knows about Egypt and ancient Egypt. So it's like they give you words like um, funerary complexes and mummification mm-hmm. and uh, portals to the afterlife and gender norms where like Osiris had a beard and uh, a very erect beard. And if you're a lady and you want to die good, you got to have a good beard, right? Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. no one ever actually goes any further. Right? Every sixth grader in the world can say, oh, yes, funerary complex, but none of us actually thought about it. And so, talking to you guys about this, Egypt is so much like more. I think it's probably a lot like the fact that I know the exact time of the naked guy dance in Little Ness's new music video. People fixate on the part that's kind of interesting and flashy and bizarre and involves naked dancing men. And in Egypt, at least three of those would have been like the entire death industrial complex they had. And there was a pretty big death industry, but, but yeah, there was, there was substantially more. And yeah. also the Egypt mania, which was fueled by Napoleon's visit to the country that then transferred into pillaging of tombs um, in the early 20th century. See that was um, bad. <laughs> yeah, led to this very kind of interest in Egypt in the 19th century and current pop culture hmm. surrounding the mummy's curse and whatnot. And I have to say, as a child, the things that I knew about Egypt where we had the voice of the mummy game, which was essentially your little figures trying to pillage the mummy's tomb. And every so often when you'd slip up, you'd hear this, you know, kind of crazy recording saying the hounds of hell are nipping at your heels move down one level <laughs> and so then also all the weird like time life books of the mysteries of the tomb and whatnot yeah. that had gory pictures of 
mummies of various types and describe the yeah, uh, mummification just, process. It's just the most sensational aspect. And it, it's fun. But It's fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, so two things I think we've learned over the last, I guess, two weeks or so. One is that it's impossible to separate religion and culture in Egypt. The two are so tightly bound together. Two is uh, it's really unreasonable to try and shove all of Egyptian history and culture into one 45-minute podcast and two weeks of research. So I expect us to fail mightily. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Or at least hopefully fail entertainingly to do this. Oh, I'm going to succeed. All of Egypt neatly encapsulated. Uh, I'm going to make something up here in two minutes. Just you wait. I'll have to say, as I was researching, I came up with a new theory about why the elites were buried with their stuff. Do you want to hear it? Yes. I I believe it's because their adult children didn't want to have to rent a storage unit. <laughs> like you didn't like your in-laws kids and you're like, mm-hmm. I don't think you need this Davenport. I'm taking it with me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but have you read uh, Junkyard Planet? No. What's that? I think it, it, it kind of underlines what you were saying. It's a, a book on how, um, on kind of the reuse industry, people that like help people declutter, people that take junk mm. out of their families' lives when they're downsizing or after death, and how goodwill and its kind of outreach type things have changed the rest of the world in kind of good and bad ways. It's a really, it's a kind of depressing read. Nobody wants grandma's china. No, that's a yeah. Nobody does exactly. I've 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 seen that before. I've seen things about that before, like heirlooms. Yeah, mostly nobody not. wants. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah. isn't a fiction book. No, no. It's a it's a pretty good book on like secondhand culture. Because I actually have like four boxes of china in somebody's garage in St. Louis, mm-hmm. which I can't throw away because it's like that fancy rice pattern china that no one makes anymore. It's just like I. I will never entertain 12 ever again. So you can bury it at the heart of a massive limestone pyramid. <gasps> yeah. Maybe we should bridge spring pyramids back. Good idea. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think that's the, I think that's really the only solution. <laughs> it's a way of getting rid of grandma's furniture. Yeah. <laughs> and her dog. So the whole pyramid thing seems like it was mostly an old kingdom invention. There's the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom. The Old Kingdom Egypt seems to have the best architecture and monuments. And that runs like 3500 BCE to, to 2000 BCE thereabouts. The mark of like Egypt beginning as a nation was when a lot of little tribal regions and many nations across the Nile kind of consolidated the Upper and Lower Nile into one nation. So with the early kings, you get this image of the two-part crown that's like the red one for the north and uh, blue, gold one for the south regions. Anyway, two-part crown is representing that upper and lower unification of Egypt. And that is the gateway moment to the Old Kingdom, which is just kind of the best sets for the Egypt movie. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So this one kind of makes sense because the underworld was, we'll call it the Duat, uh, D-U-A-T. And it was, Mm -hmm. right? And the only entrance was through the tomb. And so the more structurally capable your entrance was, the easier it was for you to pass. Sure, you could dig a hole in the ground, and technically it's a hole in the ground through which you could pass, but if you build yourself, you know, a bridge and a, you know, 
uh, what's the word, and like a concrete structural highway, it's easier to navigate. Well, the main person coming in and out of the underworld would have been the pharaoh. And I think he kind of flew in from the heaven and landed like a helicopter on top of the pyramid somehow. I'm imagining him kind of zooming in like a B-52 bomber with a long curly pointy beard thing. And that's one of the reasons the pyramids were kind of so tall was to provide this grounding point for like heaven and earth to connect. And then a tiny baby rolls down the side and hits the ground. Splat. <laughs> Just kind of going, ow, thunk, thunk, ow, thunk, ow, thunk, ow, thunk, ow. thunk, thunk. <laughs> the pharaoh and his slinkies. <laughs> See, another invention of ancient Greece. I mean, uh, Egypt. Yeah. Or both, or really, both. Mm. as we're finding out. If, um, I have to... Oh, go ahead. I'll say, climbing the pyramids is currently illegal, mm-hmm. right? There are several good YouTube videos of people who climb up there and promptly get arrested. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they're doing it for us. Yeah. They shouldn't do it, but at least they took video. My new goal, climb a, a pyramid with a GoPro and slinkies. Because <laughs> I don't think anyone's done that yet. I will get arrested. You guys will bail me out of Egyptian jail. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. We'll bail you out. Just get, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, comment, subscribe. Mm-hmm. Slinky pyramid. <laughs> and if you have a recommendation for a new co-host. <laughs> that, could that be a Patreon like uh, one of our little rewards. Bail. <laughs> Bail. <laughs> Tier one, because you love us. Legal fees. Tier two, because you enjoy us. <laughs> Tier three, because you want to hear us again. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Do y'all remember that book, Chariots of the Gods? Oh, gosh. That was all about like, ancient mysteries. Pardon me? Was that by Danikin? Um, it is. Yeah, it's by Danikin. <laughs> and it fueled like uh, the in search of. TV show with Leonard Nimoy and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, that was probably a negative point in, in our culture. It's true, but I also feel like a generation like that, again, is sort of our understanding of where, like, why the pyramids and a lot of the doings in ancient Greece, which kind of lends itself to, you know, like, fuel the sort of mm. negativity or, or kind of spookiness that we feel about Egypt. So the generation that, that grew up on that... Is our predecessor. And so everything we know, we learned from them. Except I am that generation. Because no. <laughs> the book, the documentary came out in the 70s and the book was published. When, did, when was the book published? It was published in 1968. Okay. So I am part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, we've all, it's all been kind of boiled and reduced in a thin soup of irony. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, we can go back to like the, the Napoleonic craze. Mm-hmm. Like the, when the great archaeologists were German, French, and British, and like all the British lords, just like they would compare each other's scarabs. Oh, I looted this one just last week. Oh, it's way better. I need to like make another expedition out and loot more scarabs, oh. right? Mm-hmm. And That's they would sad. do legitimate research and find legitimate stuff, and then take it home and put it on their own walls. Which yep, mm-hmm. or powder it and use it in medication. <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and, and give y'all another little treat about the uses of mummies. There would be unwrapping parties. No, I knew about the unwrapping what? parties. That's in such... Victor- in, yeah, Victorian era unwrapping parties, and they could be private. Like people come over to your house, and the entertainment would you be would be you unwrapping your mummy, or they could be public spectacles. Like I remember seeing the National Geographic. Here's our first cat scan of Tutankhamun or Tutankhamun. Right, and you're like, oh wow, this is fancy. We can see what, but they had unwrapping parties. 
We didn't they had unwrapping parties. It was like those unboxing videos. Oh wow! But way creepier. I just <laughs> what I want to know is how many of these happened. Like, were there enough mummies to satisfy the need for Victorian unwrapping parties? Did you have I, one every Sunday? I oh yeah, I wondered about that too because I mean Mark Twain kind of fueled. Um, uh, it was a joke in Innocence Abroad that, you know, mummies were so plentiful that they were used as fuel for trains. Um, but there may have been some truth in that if there were enough to be ground up into medicine yeah. and made into pigments. Paint. There was a lot yeah. of mummy brown that was made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and that was, you said like, what, 17 to 1900, hundreds of years of... Well, okay, to be fair, ancient Egypt was... Large number BC to slightly less large number BC. Thousands of years mm -hmm. of people dying. Not everyone got mummified, but lots of people died. Yeah. I mean, I mean all of them eventually. Nobles. And also, I mean, they're animal mummies, so. True. I'm going to assume that like a year 3000 mummy wasn't as much fun for an unwrapping party as like a nice 1250 BC mummy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there could be some nasty surprises. But also um little trinkets and things were uh it was kind of like um like a Christmas cracker, you know, where you'd unwrap the mummy and like little trinkets would fall out and everybody would chase after them. Ooh, like a scarab. <laughs> exactly like some really gruesome piñata. I was watching a video by Joanne Fletcher, who's a really delightful Egyptologist. She's been a lot of fun to kind of learn with. And she was talking about this this really well-known architect who designed pyramids for a pharaoh and et cetera, and the burial of his wife. And someone had just tucked in her wedding ring under her death mask. So yeah, little trinkets could be kind of added in as mementos for, for the next cycle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Joanne, if you're listening, you have the best hair. This is absolutely true. Now I have to look at her hair. She's got flyaway hair, which as someone with flyaway hair, I do admire. <laughs> she embraces it. She does. And as someone with no hair, I mean, jealousy. So prior to the pyramids, there was Mastaba, I guess. I don't know how you say that exactly. Uh, I would have said were... Mastaba. Mastaba. But we're so both prior to the wrong. There were... So prior to the pyramids, there were Mastaba, which were kind of like ranch houses for the dead. Large, long, flat, kind of rectangular. Tumuli. Tumuli made of mud bricks. One of the big advances in burying wealthy dead people technology came from Imhotep, who, besides starring alongside Brendan Fraser, invented... Brick. <laughs> well, invented <laughs> limestone block pyramids in um, 2600 BC uh, when he made a, like the first one, which is like 200 feet tall and was the largest structure anybody had ever seen. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that kind of ushered in the pyramid fad because this is a major tourist attraction. And then they just kind of popped up more and more. So kind of later, I think, than one might imagine in the cycle or in the story, the Old Kingdom kind of runs to about 2100, 2000 BCE, tied into a bunch of interestingly connected little events. First off was the 90-year reign of Pharaoh Pepito, who I'll be calling <laughs> Pepito. 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 <laughs> was, was he actually like... Some kind of cartoon mouse? No. Maybe. Maybe. Because <laughs> uh, Mickey has lasted that long. Uh, no, Pepitu, uh, he was just a very long-lived pharaoh who reigned at towards the end of one of Egypt's most prosperous periods. 
And it's actually, there's a sad note to his long reign because the Pharaoh, his big shtick was he was kind of not only the bridge between the gods and humanity, but he was also a god and he was kind of the highest priest and the most approachable god. That was his role. Hmm. But it wasn't just, you know, a, a title thing. You had duties, you had jobs, you had things you had to do. You had to be a godly specimen. So beauty regimens, coal rim eyes and things like that. And a part of that, and this is the sad story, is that every after your 30th year, you'd do the Jubilee race, which you'd run like four circuits around this giant football field courtyard two ways. So like eight circuits altogether. Ooh. And so you were, you were buff and sweating at the end of it. So it's like Logan's Run, like the origins of Logan's Run. Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah. A little, <laughs> like crystal started flashing. So Peppy <laughs> had three Jubilees. Oh, and yeah. so we're, I can only imagine what the last one was like. Not very godly. Oh, so that's happy. So yeah, so he he was kind of showing like the weakness of the human version of the gods toward mm-hmm. the end. When he passed on, there was a nasty succession war uh, mm. because ninety years, uh, and then following that, or around that same time, there was some very biblical plagues. So this is, I guess, in like nineteen hundred ish. Plague is throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. The river is blood. That is our water. That is our happiness. Trees are destroyed. Forsooth, gates, columns, and walls are consumed by fire. Forsooth, grain is perished on every side. The land is not light. Yippur, 1900-ish BCE. So there was a lot of, like, kind of collapse of civilization at the end of this old kingdom period. And something I want to pick up on later on, the kingdom got divided by a tribe influx of people called the Hiskos. The name mm, kind mm-hmm. of means, basically means the foreigners. Yeah. And they settled in the Nile Delta area for, you know, 300 years or so and just kind of took over there and became the dominant power for a time. So that kind of spelled the end of the, like, Egyptian bloodline pharaohs for 400 years or so. Mm. Their story is really neat. And it's, it's tied into set, so I'm going to throw it back by a few weeks, I think. I have, I have a question, and this may be kind of a dumb question, but... Was the calendar the same? So did 90 years actually mean 90 years? I mean, they had the Nile floods to kind of judge their years by. So I assume they had yearly cycles. And everybody's pretty much agreed on the 365 days for as long as it's been 365 days. I Okay. I think the calendar thingamajiggy between, like, everyone else is months and weeks. Because years... Okay. Like, there's a flood season, there's a dry season, there's a flood season, there's a dry season... Even if one's a couple days off, you're you're still going to get them every year, right? Okay, I guess. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering because, just like in the you know in the Bible, people live for hundreds of years, and is that <laughs> is that just you know storytelling Mostly or building? Yeah. Okay, uh, but this is hmm. potentially true, or is it myth building? Three seasons, 120 days each, each divided into four months of 30 days, so it's very similar to what we have now. Okay. I mean, 90 is not crazy, but he could have, I guess he may have even been like 100 and took uh, the throne at age 10, which was not uncommon. I think that there's probably a little bit of mythologizing going on, but no mm-hmm. historian has been able to really disprove the 90-year reign. Of or like if it Dude. floods three times in a season, were you like, oh, well, that was four years, you know? Uh, they didn't have seven-day weeks. They had 10-day decans, three per month. Mm, okay. So, mildly interesting. With two-day... Deccan ends, which is a holiday for the Royal Craftsmen's craftspeople. TGID. <laughs> Thank God it's Deccan. I think Craftsman was probably right at that time. 
Hey, so I'm interrupting the podcast a bit because we missed a really good opportunity here. Apparently, early on, pre-4000, the Egyptian calendar was 360 days because that is the number of degrees in a circle, of course. But later on, around 4000, they added five more calendar days. There's a legend of the Egyptian goddess Nut, who was cursed to not be able to bear a child on any day of the year. Toth looked at the 360-day calendar and invented five new days that were not part of the year, but were kind of set aside for festivals and such. And with those, the Egyptian calendar actually became a 365-day calendar, but before then it was only 360 because symmetry and the universe and such. Anyway, sorry we missed that, but I thought it was really neat. I wanted to add that in. So following the Old Kingdom was about 300 years of mess, and then the New Kingdom has some of the best names... Uh, that runs from like 1550 BC to 1000-ish BC. It's almost 500 got, years. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of the second major glory period of Egypt. You've got Nefertiti, Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, Ramses II, Ramses III, Ramses I, presumably. The brief period where Egypt dabbles in monotheism. Oh, yeah. Like, these are all names I know. I didn't realize right. those were not just Egypt. That's New, that's new Kingdom Egypt. Yeah, a lot of them are. I think that like Old Kingdom Egypt has the best architecture. New Kingdom Egypt has the best cast of characters. Ah. Although, hmm. uh, who's the, the beautiful woman in like 400? Mark Antony. Helen of Troy? Cleopatra. Well, the, yeah, the, but the Cleopatra story ends up being like 400 BC or so. So that's, that's a little while later. Cleopatra was the great. one with the nose, right? They all she did, noses. in fact, have a nose. Yes. Yeah. But she did. Like, well... She, yes, yes, she did. She had, I think, a significant nose. Yeah, she oh, had, like, okay. the, the the aquiline nose when, I, I don't know, but that was, like, part of her beauty. Okay, so wait, so who was the beauty you were talking about? Nefertiti? Nefertiti was a big name, yeah. She was Ignatan's wife, I think. I think we're there's multiple beauty myths going on here. Well, Helen of Troy fits in here as well. There's some overlap, but I don't know at what time period. Well, Nefertiti, whose name means a beautiful woman has, has come, uh, was the queen of Egypt and Ankhnetan's wife. And they were both kind of proponents of the Aten monotheistic cult in the oh, okay. 14th century. So, yeah, she was known for her beauty and for being the, a fairly powerful queen. Hmm. Great name, too. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool, cool. A- after the New Kingdom, there's another kind of 300-year period of, like, a little bit of chaos. And then, really... After a thousand, it seems to be one takeover after another from Persians and uh, Greeks and Romans and things like that and Islamic nations. And it just kind of stops being run by native Egyptians after that and eventually kind of fades out as a a Roman battle state. So what is it now? Uh, It's a tourism-based economy. (laughs) Fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I used to know some of this about the 20th century uh, history of Egypt, and I um, have forgotten a lot of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that's for another show. (laughs) I feel like we're probably going to make someone mad. Mm -hmm. So we've done our jobs. Yay! Do somebody mad by talking about modern Egypt? I just might get it horribly wrong. Glossing over all of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna venture there. 
And just like I was saying, like, we're not going to get into Islam today, are we? We probably shouldn't. <laughs> Someday we will. Mm-hmm. Not today. Another moment I had with Joan Fletcher was she was talking about... There was one scene where she's showing a, a funerary complex. And it was in this, like, as you were saying, this whole, like, Greek-Egyptian melange... Or she was like, okay, here's all these very, very Egyptian names. Here's all these very, very Egyptian faces. Here's all these very, very Egyptian uh, statues of gods and goddesses and myths and mythos. But then we've got these Doric columns going down the hall. It's like the the structure is very, like, Greek. And the content is very Egyptian. Mm -hmm. And... It's very much so it's like, this is not just, oh, we're Greek and we're doing this. It's, we are Egyptians, and these are our people. These are our faces up on the wall. You can see me pointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a Doric column, because our architects are Greek. Mm-hmm. And it was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, that's the extent of, like, Greek Egypt in insert time period now. Eep. Mm. So the moment I had with Joanne today was that she was talking about sort of temple and sandstone mountain, Jebel Barkal, which is near a bend that's kind of near the source of the Nile. And it's a pretty majestic, large rock. What it's best known for is that's the hill that Atam Ra first stepped on when the world was created. Oh, hmm. It's cool. a, a very majestic mound, and it overlooks the source of the Nile. So you got that whole... Nile River is life, and this is like the furthest that direction point in Egypt as well. So it kind of marks like really the beginning of life, the beginning of the world, so far as like the Egypt region goes. Did he release a slinky? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's a strange story of about masturbation and incest, like so many god stories are. I thought we were just stepping on rocks. <laughs> first, first you step on rock. And out of the primal water, and so then the man you, in the ro- <laughs> and then you sleep with your shadow or hand to create a pair of spirit children that mm-hmm. then mate mm-hmm. with each other to create the rest of the gods. Let's just make a video of, with him and a slinky. I think that, just yeah, this, all that slinky is a more wholesome story. I That's think. less incest and more self-cest. Yeah, no, it, it really is a lot. There's actually four kind of not really competing, but alternate versions of like the creation myth in Egypt. Uh, there's the, the one I just went through was the, um, was the Heliopolis version. Uh, the Hermopolis version was that there were eight primeval, primeval gods called the Agduad. And mm-hmm. together they represented kind of the unknown chaos of the waters. And when the male gods, when the male Agduad gods and the female Agduad gods, Agduad gods, Agduad gods, it's fun <laughs> to say got together, there was a massive upheaval that created a pyramid-shaped mound, and the sun popped out of it. Huh. Okay. All right. Or, the Memphis version, Ta, the god of craftspeople, gave form to the world and the rest of the gods when he spoke. And that's very kind of Yahwehist, actually. And there's some ideas that maybe Yahweh is actually a metallurgy god from Canaan, and that's why they're kind of some, they're tied together in this sort of mythology of the mm. word made form. Let there be floodplain. Yeah. <laughs> I also feel like this is the origin of mansplaining because, you know, he created the world with his word 
The word was probably actually. And <laughs> First he created an audience and then. <laughs> and the Thebs version, BB's Thebs. Oh, Thebs. Isn't it Thebs? The Thebs version, which is that Amun is sort of a transcendent deity beyond everything. And he sort of reflexively created the gods by breaking the stillness of the first water. And they were all kind of aspects of himself. But a lot of these things are kind of the out-of-water myth and kind of tied mm -hmm. to the idea of, like, the order emerging from the chaos of the water. Breaking the stillness of the first water. Yes. Cannonball! <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first word. So, kind of from the very beginning of Egyptian mythology, we get this really powerful dualism. This is a major thing that carries for forever. <laughs> okay, wait. You say dualism... Which two things? Are we talking like water, not water? Light, dark? Dualism is just very common in Egyptian mythology anyway. You get a lot of binary pairs. Sun, moon. The biggest one is Miet versus Isfet. And that's order and chaos. Um, yeah, that's very reductionist, sir. But it's a good place to start. Okay, well, so, so to go back, like, when you say dualism, are you talking a specific dualism, or everything is viewed as this or that, black or white, red or green, man, woman? Uh, there, there are a lot of binary pairs in Egyptian mythology. Um, Osiris and Set is one. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, Isfet segment, and Yet. Segment and Bestet. Um, but Miat and Isfet is kind of the biggest one that is the very kind of primal dualism that runs the entire universe. Miat, Miat is not just order. It's kind of order and harmony and right living and community. Wait, kind hang of, on. Where's, where's my Miat? You need to press the Miat button. Okay. <clears throat> Truth, balance, order, harmony, law, morality, and justice. Yeah, all those things. And, and to be fair, this is, I've seen this, you've seen this, it's M-A-A-T or M-A apostrophe A-T, Mayet or Miet. That's, that's kind of what we're seeing. So when you hear us say Miet, order, apostrophe, everything, that's this girl. Yeah, I really want to say ma'at, but that's not right. Yeah, I've I've said ma'at for years. Well, we're both wrong. We've both learned. Wow. I'm the only one who isn't wrong here. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> for once. The opposing force, like the 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 podge versus the podge of this one is mm. isfet, which is injustice, violence, evil acts, and disorder. Um but I think probably leaning on evil is not necessarily best. These two are balancing forces, and it's kind of like when you say the shadow can't exist without the light. That's a lot of what this, this binary pair is. So there is chaos. There is change. This is ceaseless. And Miet and civilization and the presence of the pharaoh and the ongoing rituals of life hold back the chaos, and they create this kind of bubble of order uh that is the benefit the great benefit of society hmm. and, and you kind of said this at the very beginning society culture religion it's all the same 
we have these practices, these rituals, these ways of doing things intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. And it is perhaps order for order's sake, but that's okay because order for order's sake helps kind of bind everything together and kind of preserves the the positive side of this dualistic balance. I mean, while there is order, while there's a pharaoh, there's the safe space of civilization, and then there's the rest of the world. That's that's society. I mean, yes. we we touched this way back in Acadia with the me. Here's yes. the specific instruction set for living a good life. Yes. Or planting corn, or wooing women, or offering to the temples, right? Yes. I think it was probably a little more freedom than that, but there was soon to be kind of a right, a right way of doing things. Yes. You do this, you do this series of things as a society to be, remain a society, or else you will degrade into non-society. Therefore, mm -hmm. the priests want you to give us 10% of your money. Else chaos. I think that's perhaps a little bit cynical. Oh. But Miet mm. oh. also involved uh, <laughs> collaboration, being together, cooperation. These were also kind of positives of civilization. So while I think that a lot of this ends up going into the pockets of the industrial funeral complex, the basic idea of a life of ritual creates harmony that keeps us on the in, on this good path of having nice orderly floods that benefit our lands and all the bread we can eat. I think it's a, a good, a good happy thing. And just because something is a ritual doesn't mean it's not fun. I mean, they had very big party rituals. Let's discuss the red beer one. <laughs> yeah. And the Bastet festival was essentially just this drunken bacchanal. Yes. Two of my favorite words. <laughs> <laughs> The origin of this festival, at least in part, are in the Book of the Heavenly Cow, which, <laughs> great title. Uh -huh. This is a, a complex story about how Atom Ra just got fed up with humanity because humanity was plotting against him. They were going to overthrow him. So he sends his flying, all-seeing eye to smite humanity. And over the course of this, either the flying, all-seeing eye becomes Hathor and then Sekhmet, or it becomes Sekhmet, or someone told him that Sekhmet was a better idea. Mm -hmm, I'm not really mm -hmm. sure how Sekhmet and Hathor relate to each other. Hathor is kind of the very beloved god of love and motherhood, uh, and she's a cow. And Sekhmet is kind of the horrible lioness god of war and bloodshed. What I heard, uh, what I heard um, or what I read is that um, Hathor was, uh, appeared in the form of Sekhmet, so, yeah. because of the the need for somebody who has bloodlust, right? I, I that makes as much as sense as anything else does. Mm -hmm. Regardless, the sacred happy cow god lady went on a bloody rampage, um, destroying everything in her path, and her bloodlust turned into massive frenzy. So Ra decided to get so Ra gets her drunk with seven thousand jars of beer, mixing them with some red dye number five, so that she thinks it's blood, and she drinks all of it and passes up. And when she wakes up, she's Hathor again. <laughs> Which is why one of Hathor's other names is the Lady of Drunkenness, and why barmaids brew beer. Ah! Although, actually, Tenenet was the goddess of beer, so that is something again. Hmm. Hmm. The, the, the non-beer portion of the story, and, and that, that part of that becomes like this ritual of red beer that celebrates Hathor slash Sekhmet. 
after this, Rod just kind of gets fed up and he drifts away to the higher heavens. And in his place, he leaves Osiris, Isis, and Thoth to kind of rule the world. And also, tie into the entire point of our podcast, he creates the Field of Reeds to serve as the afterlife. This is all kind of an on-my-way-out-the-door sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So as he leaves, death enters the world, and there's not an uber-god keeping order and harmony anymore, but these kind of middle management people that just don't quite get it right ever. So also kind of chaos enters the world, and this creates the world they would live in, quote now, unquote, which is imperfect and flawed. Yes, just like everything, really. Very cyclic, though. I think there's a lot of patterns of the Nile floods each year. King follows king follows king. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it's very important. And every night the sun sets, the gods battle the serpent Apophis, who's going to eat the sun, but they always succeed. And the sun comes back, and the lion eats the gazelle, and so on and so forth. So this strong sense of cycle and time that kind of fades backwards into eternity. Does it, wait, why does it fade backward? Why isn't it fading forward? I guess it fades both ways. Okay. I don't know. I don't design papyrus scrolls very often. Did I show you the picture of Hekka? Hekka, no. Hekka, no. I'm going to show him to you now. What? Hekka. So popping this into our, oh, I can't do it. So I'm sharing an image of Hekka with you now. Hekka is the god of magic. Oh, okay. I have to call attention to you to his striking headgear. She's raising which, the roof. Yeah. Or he. Yeah, it's two, what, what? It's two, mm-hmm. two hands waving. He's got two hands in a sort of like butt-like mount waving in the air over his head. Um, like he just don't care. Right. Totally, totally. Uh, so Hekka is, second thing first, Hekka is the god of healing uh, and his his ritual symbol is the snake stick the like two two snakes wrapped around a stick uh, the, uh what's the word for that caduceus the caduceus mm-hmm. which is also the marker of Asclepius, the greek god of doctor people and and it's the symbol of ninazu you remember ninazu uh ershkagal and gugulana's son who's kind oh, of a right. healing and underworld mm-hmm. god there so that's an old symbol. Um, but first thing, Hekka is the god of magic. And in a sense, he's possibly one of the most powerful gods out there because all of his, his, his energies underline all spells and all ritual. And he was there before Atum stepped onto the hill to create everything. And, and I think the reason I'm spending so much time on this is two things. One, I love his little hat because I, I mean, totally, yeah, I would totally wear that to any strange game or parade. <laughs> I love that you could get like just mannequin arms, and right? Kind of hands in the air. Mm-hmm. But also, I, it's amazing. He's an amazing, powerful god that a lot of people have never heard of. I certainly hadn't mm-hmm. because he's so pervasive and everywhere and sort of transcendent that he doesn't get included in any stories. Well, we need to create some stories for him then. Yeah, yeah, to explain the hat, for one. Mm-hmm. I think it's like little child mannequin. Yeah, those, are not, have to get. those are not big people arms. Those are small arms. Mm-hmm. Well, it also, I, I know I mentioned uh, Plan 10 from Outer Space. It resembles the motions of the Dance of the Bees that are Masonic symbols in that, in that musical. Yes, number. yes, uh-huh. But on his head. <laughs> 
That was that's the only move I know from the Dance of the Bees, and every time he says it, I do that, and you're the only one that laughs. So thank you. <laughs> that's what that's my soul. That's my raison d'être. How do you say it again? Raison d'être. Raison d'être. That's in- wow. incredibly wrong, by the way. <laughs> As someone who only was who briefly dated a Canadian. Okay, so Hecka, <laughs> like, I actually didn't know anything you said about this until you started saying it, and I realized I knew all of this from the other end. And I was like, oh, wait, you're saying a thing I thought I knew, and then you're saying a thing I I know. Okay, so Hecka is... Clarify, please. <laughs> okay, so you take the butter, and you heat it gently. Oh, goddammit. <laughs> oh... Blaspheme! <laughs> okay, so Heka is magic, right? Yes. Heka, okay. <clears throat> Egypt is Egypt is weird. Much like any culture that's not your culture is weird, right? You've got concepts and you've got personifications and they overlap, right? So you've got this... Yes. I, I think he's a dude. Just because he has a beard doesn't mean he's a dude. Heka could right. be a she. Mm-hmm. I get he a lot with him, okay. but... Okay, so Heka, the concept is magic. Like, this ritualistic magic, where you have these incantations, you you uh, draw this thing on the wall, you do this flailing with the arms, you slam your staff on the ground, and something happens. Mm-hmm. And ancient Egyptian magic is very subtle, Right? Uh, what's the word? It's, um... Doop, doop, doop. Okay, so you've got, like, sympathetic magic, which is not, mm, right. you know, lightning bolts and things that start. It's wear this thing around your neck and the fleas won't bite, mm-hmm. right? It's very inimical magic or magic which is not intentionally harmful. It, it's... Jo- Joanne said something that kind of went against that as an idea. Oh. She said, and I mean, this is this is kind of interesting and tied to what you're saying, Early Egyptian magic was mostly about miet and harmony and these rituals that kind of bind us to the gods and make our civilization stay civil and things like that. But after Pepitu and the kind of collapse of faith in the pharaohs, maybe that was Mm. 1400 as opposed to 1900, there was a period of a lot more fear, more kind of sense that there was a state surveillance mechanism. The hexing and the evil eyes. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that was the malignant was a, magic. Yeah, and that was I think I think like fourteen hundred and later, where the pharaoh was not god on earth, and people had less faith in the miet side of magic and needed some cursing to make their lives. And she did a little ritual where she wrote someone's name on a clay pot and then smashed it to the ground, which is very cathartic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, Heka, um, a lot of the priests were priest librarians because they were the ones that could read. A lot of the Hecatic magic was canting or language-based. And it was Thoth was the inventor of the writing system. And you know me, I love writing and words and languages and stuff. Thoth made Heka. Thoth made language and language made magic. And I was like, oh, yes, words are neat. Words have power. Words can convey communication. And it's that Hekka hmm. that you just described. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like Hekka is the secret background of everything. Yeah. Mm. So so important that he's not worth naming. 
Hecka is hella cool. We should start a new campaign. It's like it's like today, no one says, oh, one of the great cultural aspects of America is the ABCs. No one ever talks <laughs> about the ABCs. They're so basic. Mm-hmm. One of like the three or four articles I read about Hecka said that he kind of fell out of belief and into superstition. Just like the ABCs. Which, yeah. I mean, <laughs> who, who, who even knows what that Have means? you seen <laughs> kids try and spell these days? It's terrible. You're thinking of me again, aren't you? <laughs> LOL. Kids. <laughs> Lucifer out Lean loud. Loving on Lucifer. <laughs> Loving on Lucifer. Lady priests, that was a thing. Oh, tell me more about lady priests. I really can't, only that it was a thing. And the image of like the entirely male priesthood, not necessarily true. So that's kind mm-hmm. of happy. Well, they had to wear beards. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody had to wear beards. The kids, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, dogs, cats, everybody wore the beards. <laughs> Alligators. But it sounds like the priests were kind of there alongside people because, again, the saturation of life with religion was, was very thick. Yeah. While priests were the only people that could really talk to the pharaoh and really talk directly to the gods, they were still actively engaged with their culture. Hmm. They're not, like, necessarily an elite group. Speaking of elite, Victoria... Oh, thank you. I believe, thank you for I believe you meant crocodile. <laughs> Alligators live in Louisiana. It's true. I realized my, the folly the folly of my ways after I uttered the blasphemous alligator. These allegations will not fit. <laughs> oh. I give you now Professor Twist, a conscientious scientist. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I can't, if I can, can I do the entire poem? Um, one day when traveling far and wide, he one day missed his loving bride. A trusted guide informed him later she'd been eaten by an alligator. Professor oh. Twist could not but smile. You mean, he said, a crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's kind of a good segue. <laughs> what, like one of those stand-up scooters? <laughs> it is, because I wanted to talk about animal cults. Yeah, let's, uh, we were talking about like the, the people and popular religion. Let's, uh... Mm-hmm. What did the po- crocodiles and what did the popular people, people do? And- <laughs> they tied beards to their kittens. <laughs> oh my gosh! We should have a whole Instagram channel. TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> I need to understand how the tick and the talk work. Uh, no and- clue. Etsy page: Royal Pharaoh beards. Kitty. <laughs> that would sell. <laughs> to uncom meow. Oh. Toot uncommon. <laughs> Product name. What's the what's the word? It's not a snood. It's the Shakespearean uh Oh, like a not a Merkin. Merkin. Merkin is the word. <laughs> that is not a snood. <laughs> Your kitten chin Merkin. Oh dear. Seventeen ninety nine plus shipping and handling. On that note, on that note, moving, <laughs> moving to animal moving cults, steadily downward into the gutter. Exactly. Let's let's go to things that are closer to the ground. Um, so we've talked about the apis bull uh, briefly, um, but that's one of the first animal cults, as you may imagine, and that uh, dates to the reign of King Aha of the first dynasty. Uh-huh. I don't know. If, Aha, Take and he discovered the the animal cult. Aha. And since then, various animal cults received a lot of considerable emphasis, um, beginning with the 26th dynasty, 
And that's connected to a resurgence of Egyptian nationalism. So this is kind of a national movement um, to kind of reclaim Egyptian culture. But um, animals weren't worshipped as gods. They were instead thought of as manifestations of the gods. Uh, so like the cult statues, um, they were actually a vehicle through which gods could make their will manifest and through which the faithful could demonstrate their devotion to the gods. Okay. So, um, The second I understand. Think, yes. Mm -hmm. Go on. Oh, so the first one about the manifestation of a god. Yeah. Is this like, like in Mexico, the baby Jesus cries? So, like, a god can be, and all there's a little bit more about different kinds of sacred animals, but a god could be a crocodile, or, like, a god could inhabit a crocodile, or a god could inhabit, inhabit all crocodiles. Hmm. Yeah. So, thinking about the spirit moving into an animal. So, they're a vessel, essentially. Like, like the cult statues. Does that make sense? It, it does. But then me as a popular person, what am I going to do when I come across this crocodile? See, we're getting to that. Okay. Okay. So hold that thought. So an idea, like if, if you need to kind of better understand the animal God connection, you could think of Horus, who uh, is represented as a falcon. So if that's already in the kind of religious pantheon, it's not too much of a stretch to think about gods inhabiting alcohol. Uh, Crocodiles. <laughs> Alcohol and crocodiles are both bad for your liver. <laughs> <laughs> right, totally. Um, and ibises and scarabs and cows, essentially any living creature that has nostrils. So there's three different kinds of sacred animals. So this is going to get to your question here in a minute, Jamin, um, that were honored. There's the temple animal. And they function, again, very similar to the cult statues. So they lived in or near a temple, and they were often distinguished by particular markings like the bull hmm. of um, Epis Bull of Memphis. With the holy and, spots. Yeah, with holy spots, exactly. And so the bull, you know, that's one type of sacred animal. But another one, and this gets to what you were asking about, a second class is those kept in large numbers near a temple. And so in these animal cults, we encountered the ability of Egyptian gods to, ex to extend their existence to not just one crocodile or scarab or snake or dog or cat, but to all... All crocodiles. Uh-huh. Exactly. Okay, that, that's Skynet. So, mm-hmm. But, so, but, but with dogs. But with dogs. <laughs> Imagine Skynet, but with dogs. Okay. And so, like, in these... Temples dedicated to a certain animal, you would have flocks of ibises or falcons. So, and also these in these uh, temples, you would also have these kind of necropolis. Is it necropoli? Is, would that be the plural of a necropolis? Necropolitos. Necropolitos full of mummified cats, dogs, Wait, primarily, or scarabs. Is that the third one? Mm -hmm. The third one is the. No, oh. we're still on the second one. Yes. We're coming to the third. Oh, 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 hang on. Let me... I know. It's a ride. It's a roller coaster. Let me open a fresh bag of Cheesy Ranch Necropolitos. <laughs> okay, so that's... Okay, so we got a single animal. <laughs> Smells mm -hmm. like sour cream and the tomb. <laughs> we, got, we got a single animal. Mummy dust. A flock 
of animals and mummified animals. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now the denouement. The denouement. The third point, point the third, those were ones animals kept in private homes as representatives oh. of gods. And so these were live animals. So you wouldn't so, have a segment lion in your house necessarily. No, but you could have a segment uh, crocodile in the bathtub. Yes. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Probably not, but you could have a cat who was representative Bastet, or you could have an ibis uh, that's representative Horus, or, you know, some other small animal. You could even have a snake. So, and these animals would be buried with their owners upon the owner's death. They also would receive a more honorable burial, a more fancy form of mummification than a lot of the votive animals. So you weren't necessarily venerating them, but treating them kindly kind of keeps you in line with your god and improves your miet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. So, who, as a newcomer to this whole field, this question. Okay. So let's say you're a crazy Egyptian cat lady. Yep. And you got 27 Mm -hmm. cats. Yep. Is only one of them Bastet or all of them? We've established that all of them are. All of them. Mm-hmm. So do all of them get mummified? Or like, can you have non-bastet cats mingling with your bastet cats? We see this is a question for the ages because it is very difficult for Egyptologists to distinguish between pets and sacred animals oh, in a burial setting. Because they hadn't invented Sharpies yet. Exactly. And votive animals are a little bit clearer to identify, and I will tell you why in a minute. Okay? After this commercial. That's right. (laughs) Stay tuned. So now we're back. The animal cults around the 30th dynasty, I just mentioned the 29th dynasty, they started to take on a new significance. And again, they became this representation of Egyptness at a time when the country was being drawn into the Mediterranean world and had already been caught up in power struggles with Greece and Rome. So this was like a reassertion of an identity, specifically like a religious identity. Um, So it's kind of a a populist movement as well, which I find very interesting. This is our culture. This is our heritage. This is who we are. Exactly. And it also was like a more immediate (laughs) connection. And also provided a more immediate connection to one's gods because it's essentially like, I mean, as you'll see in a second, like lighting a candle to present a mummified dog. See, that was the temple. That was my exact question is like you say votive offering. I think votive mm-hmm. candles like this is a sacrificial offering, not a representative of a deity. Right. 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 So there are there are um, I'm going to. I, hoofed, I, I am... oh, 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 okay. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about Anubis and Bastet and their temples. One's a jackal, um, one's a cat. One's a jackal, one's a cat. So the well, temple, not necessarily that uh, Anubis could be a pharaoh hound. We don't know. Oh, that's true. Right. Mm-hmm. I think most people just assume he's a jackal, but that's those true. people are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> you nerd. <laughs> We taught you the right way. Just alienated (laughs) two-thirds of our three listeners. Do you want to explain why you made that distinction? No, not particularly. I just think he's he's not necessarily a jackal. Also, he's a a fairly noble, loyal creature. 
Oh, he's great. He's, he's totally great. Jackals don't tend to be noble or loyal. Also, they have like sharp, shrill voices is kind of part of their mythology as well. So, But you know what he is, um, you know what he oversees? Um, a few things, but mummification is one of them. Yep. So he is your, he's your, he's your dude for mummification. Also a um, fairly high functioning psychopomp type as well. A lot of dogs end up being psychopomps. Yeah, that makes total sense. He's also, he also protects travelers, which would go into the psychopomp hmm. situation, I think. I'm upset that I didn't get to say psychopomp first in this conversation. I'm sorry. Next time. <laughs> so anywho, uh, his catacombs um, contain thousands upon thousands of mummified dogs. Oh. Um, a plan published by Jacques de Morgan in 1897 suggested that the two catacombs, one is smaller than the other, that contain all these dogs, dated to the New Kingdom, but it's more likely that the smaller catacomb is older and perhaps was built in the 5th to 4th century BCE when animal cults began to increase in popularity. Hmm. So once constructed, the monument gradually filled over time with mummified dogs. But uh, where did they come from and how were they deposited here? So there may originally, the catacombs may have originally contained up to 8 million animals. Jeez Louise. <laughs> um, even allowing for a duration of like 400 to 500 years for these to accumulate, thousands would have been dedicated every single year. Yes. Okay, so eight, one, two, three, one, two, three, divided by five, zero, zero. 16,000 a year divided by... How many by dogs a minute are we talking about? <laughs> 43 dogs a day, 43.8 dogs a day, oh. divided by 24. It's one dog every half hour. Y yeah, so... <laughs> that's, that's grim. BPM sparks per minute. Do you have something to take me out of this dark moment? Well, no. let's see. <laughs> let's see. So uh, some of these animals would have been sacred animals, uh -huh. as we discussed earlier, um, which were considered manifestations of Anubis. You could tell these because they were buried in little coffins that were in little niches okay. in the catacombs. But most, and I'm sorry, you might want to plug your ears, Jacob. Most of these animals were neonates that were only days or weeks of age. And these were procured specifically as votive animals for the cult. So, oh, it's a mummified dog breeding program. Yes. So these probably came from puppy farms. Oh. And that has a really negative connotation today, of course. But the belief was that these dogs were a representation of the god. And the hope was that the animal would then act on behalf of the donor and would be a go-between between the donor and the go and god. To be fair, like in the concept of votive offerings, mm -hmm. a dog is a dog is a dog. Why bother wasting months of your time and a 50 pound bag of Alpo when you can just mummify a puppy, right? Well, yes. And there's an economy to this. Yeah. You're hitting uh -huh. on the economy of this. So, oh, Jacob, there are don't many listen. ways to, I mean, this is how these temples and made money, you know? So, you breed the dogs. These little puppies who, you know, were little neonates. Also, you have to have an embalming priest who does the mummification oh. process. And then also the people who 
mine for the salt, the mineral salt that you use in the mummification process, make some money off of it. And also you need a ton of oil and resin. And because they're smaller, you can fit more in a jar. You can do more with the same amount of salt, right? Why use Mm -hmm. all that salt on a big old dog when you got six in a jar with the same amount of salt? It's it's Mm -hmm. efficient. It's expedient. Just just get a salad spinner. (laughs) I mean... Oh, oh. I know Jacob is dying every with every word I say. Now, um, I love puppies. I love hugging puppies and kissing their little noses. Uh-huh. But I understand, like, efficiency and expediency. Well, here's the thing. So, when there's an economy, yeah. there's often ways of cheating people. So, one way to do that was not following the, you know, official mummification process, but instead just drying the dogs out in the sun so that they would just be kind of naturally desiccated. And also a lot of the donors were, may have assumed that they were going to be donating a full-size dog and weren't present to see what kind of dog was actually donated. Because they were dead. Well, the dogs were, but (laughs) the donors often weren't present, just kind of like, you know, when you're sending a, you know, a memorial to or, a church or, or a pe- something like that. A, pepper, a Pepperidge Farm sausage bundle. Right, exactly. But one other thing, like, there are also mass burials. The Archive of Horror, which is a series of texts related to the Ibis cult, a lot of mass burials for Ibises took place annually. And that's entirely... Are those the waiting birds? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this probably also happened with these votive dogs, too. So there's probably like thousand interred at the same time. But yeah, and sometimes, you know, the votive mummies were stored for a while until there was potentially another mass burial. So um, yeah, once you're mummified, it's good for a while. Mm-hmm. Like ever. So, but right. So Bastet, the kitty, our, our kitty goddess... She uh, was a goddess of protection, pleasure, and the bringer of good health. She had the head of a cat and a slender female body. And so she has been worshipped since, or was worshipped since the second dynasty, most commonly in lower Egypt. But her name is kind of interesting. And as we know, names were hugely important to ancient Egyptians because they're tied directly to not only identity, but existence both in this life and the after. And so... The names of ancient deities were often represented yeah. as references to associations and euphemisms. Yeah, like massive concepts. Exactly. Like, like so Heka. Her, right. Yeah. And so... I knew this, but I never actually looked for it. Uh-huh. Does Bastet mean toxoplasmosis? <laughs> <laughs> you are so close. Because it means she of the ointment jar... She of the ointment jar definitely has medicative connotations. Yeah, because she's also, I mean, she is associated with protection, specifically protective ointments, and also alabaster, which a lot of the ointment jars and the jars that mummy innards went into were often Mm. alabaster. But this goes back to, we were just talking about Sekhmet, um... Bastet was the daughter of Ra and Isis, and in some cases, the sister of Sekhmet. In some cases, they are two 
flavors of the same goddess. But Sekhmet was a psychopomp for pharaohs. And she also has some interesting names. One before whom evil trembles, mistress of dread, lady of slaughter, and she who mauls. M-A-U-L-S. Oh, I was thinking like, let's go shopping. Like, you know, shopaholic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bastet and uh, Sekhmet both are considered the wife of Ta, P-T-A-H. Oh, the craft god. Mm-hmm. Is right, it, right. Is it Bast or Bastet? Bast, well, it's both. She, she's known as both names, Bastet or Bast. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there is, an, like, Bastet, I think, was another one. Like, there's several different iterations on her name. But she's the mother also of Mihos or Mahes, Mahes, M-A-A-H-E-S, who was associated with war, protection, weather, and knives and lotuses and devouring captives. Got to add that to every list. War and lotuses. So uh huh. So he's kind of like a, a Swiss army knife hmm. of deities. Yeah. He's also called Lord of Slaughter, Wielder of the Knife, and the Scarlet Lord. So, like I said, Bastet and um, Sekhmet sometimes were conflated, but they eventually became characterized as two aspects of the same goddess. Sekhmet was a lion representing powerful warrior and protector aspect, and Bastet was increasingly depicted as a cat representing the gentler aspect of the deity. So it was was believed every day that Bastet would ride through the sky with her father. And as his boat pulled the sun through the sky, she would watch over and protect him. And at night, she would turn into a cat to protect Ra from his greatest enemy, the serpent, a pep. I know, Jamin, you're going to disagree with this, but because domestic cats are very good mothers to their offspring, Bastet was also regarded as a very good mother and sometimes was depicted with numerous kittens. And the Greeks sometimes equate her with Artemis. So, uh uh-huh. Oh, I feel like this is the Egyptians did what the Egyptians did. The Greeks did what the Greeks did. And never the twain shall meet. And then accidentally they Mm -hmm. meet. And they're like, oh, hey, yours is kind of like mine and yours is kind of and mine is kind of like yours. Let's just smush the two together. Right. So two, two, two deities. Artemis didn't have to be Bastet until uh, economic trade sanctions. Hmm. Okay. It's an interesting theory. This will tie into, I think, two or three episodes down the road where I'm going to talk about how Set is Keberus's father. Oh, Okay. We just have one more thing, because we haven't talked about kitty mummies yet. Okay. There are lots and lots of kitty mummies, and just a ridiculous amount at the Temple of Babastus. So Wait, some three... more than 8 million? Well, no. Oh. There were 300,000 that were mummified and buried, many next to their owners. So you couldn't swing a cat without hitting a cat. Yeah, and so they essentially were... Also could be sacred, you know, sacred animals, representations of Bastet, beloved pets, Hmm. or votives. So let's say 300,000 belonging to their owner. Mm -hmm. Let's be generous and say that each owner had two cats. So there's Mm -hmm. 150,000 mummies across this necropolis, across these necropoli. Mm -hmm. 150,000, we talked about this earlier, were there enough mummies to satiate Europe yeah, 150,000, that's a bunch. Like, you can make a lot mm-hmm. of paint, a lot of medicine, and have a lot of parties. Well, you know, the animal mummies were used for fertilizer. 
I mean, why wouldn't you? Because there's like, it was just like lousy with animal mummies. Yeah, it's actually so kind of hard to argue with that one. Yeah. I mean, that one actually makes some sense. Hmm. Sandman fans know that Bast is a character in the Sandman comic books, a lover of dream. And also, I don't know uh, if you knew this too, but the Disney movie Three Lives of Thomasina. Oh, yeah. That was sweet. Mm-hmm. There's, it's based on a 1957 book called Thomasina, the Cat Who Thought She Was a God, which is about a cat who wakes up from anesthesia and believes that she's Bastet. This is very so, Velveteen Rabbit, kind of. But kind of the reverse, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't die in a fire. Right, huh. exactly. You don't die in a fire. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I knew that cats and dogs were mummified. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that mummified cats and dogs could be votives. Ah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there a difference between a votive cat and a votive dog? As opposed to a representative cat and a representative dog. I would say just in who you are asking for communication. What what god you're asking for communication mm. with. So it's not like there's a tier. I can only afford six cats, but not but or one dog. No. Once like the dogs are for Anubis, cats are for uh, best. Okay, that that's fair. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like sames, you know, like you gotta, you know, have the the little like representative of the god that you are trying to get to intercede in your life the catholics just light little tea candles and like you put a dollar in the box and you light a candle and that like Uh i mean it's the same thing just a bit less effort well i don't know mummifying a critter (laughs) oh so are you saying the candles less effort or the mummification? oh the candle like like, i was in i I went in like (laughs) when i visited the the notre dame cathedral before uh-huh. it lit on fire. Like, I was mm-hmm. like, I'm only going to be here once. I will put a dollar in the box and light a candle on fire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Say a thing, right? Like, yeah, no effort. What if they'd had like a little dispenser, like a little <laughs> um, snack machine that had rows of mummified it'd kittens? Be, it'd be the, the, what are the things you put a quarter in and there's the, there's the plastic sphere and you open it and you get the prize? Oh, the, the gumball, gumball machine. machine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you rotate, the, yeah, right. Oh, what? But what would you do if it got stuck? A kitten. You know, <laughs> you have to like reach up and grab your mummified kitten. Yeah. But yeah, so Egyptians stopped making mummies between the fourth and seventh century AD. When can you guess what happened? Why they stopped making mummies? They ran out of bitumen. No, you're so close. They ran out of dead people. No, they found Jesus. That's that's when Egyptians became Christians. Oh, okay. The word Coptic could probably be inserted somewhere in there. But one might one might use the mm. word Coptic here. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, that was the end of the mummy. The end of the mummy era. Totally unrelated to this. I was mm-hmm. trying to find information about King Renab or King Nebra, one of the two, mm-hmm. who was the first pharaoh to declare himself divine. Oh, but when was that? 2800 BCE. Okay. But everything came back with the search results on King Raman, which is different. <laughs> can I, can I, so we've hit on most uses of mummies, but there are two that we did not hit on. Oh man. Okay. Oh man. Oh man. Mm-hmm. One is babysitter. Total sense. <laughs> Bulletin board. What? Really? No, I'm kidding. Okay. Good. <laughs> no, but 
mummy wrappings were used as paper in making paper because paper is often made from linen fiber. Okay. But I think a mummy would make a better bulletin board. So dismaying. Everything in this conversation has been just dismaying. I don't have a better word. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, This last one is my favorite, however. She said unapologetically. It's true. Mummies' ashes were used to create fake saint relics, such as the cremains of Joan of Arc. Oh, goodness gracious. Indistinguishable from real human flesh. (laughs) Well, it was at one point. Mm -hmm. Oh. People are bad. People are always going to find an angle. That's what we've learned from my little segment here tonight. You're conflating (laughs) bad with creative. Opportunistic? Yeah. Having been an artist in Mm -hmm. the past, I I see nothing wrong with this. So we should probably wrap this up fairly soon. (laughs) Just like a mummy. So to speak. But mummy, I don't want to. If somehow, through sheer force of will, you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a positive rating on your favorite podcatcher of choice. And until then, we'll see you in hell. podcast is copyright 2021 by the dispatchist and its creative commons you're welcome to reuse with attribution look for us on your favorite podcast app say hi to us on twitter or gmail at the dispatchist no spaces check out our website dispatch.ist for more episodes show notes and a variety of hellish resources Okay, so I'm playing the little adventurer lady with the high stockings and mini skirt, and I'm putting myself here and mm-hmm. moving my cartouche. Okay. And then. And then, did you get to the? Did you land on a mummy on the the pharaoh? I don't know. How do I know? Because it looks like a little pharaoh. Let's say yes. <laughs> Okay, so now there's a little button at his feet, okay? Push that button. Did did I win? No, no, Jacob. No, you didn't win. Okay. <laughs>